Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. We're giving Saqib Ali a week off. He has been really busting it for TWAA, working really hard, putting together this show. We wanted to give him a week off. So it's Matt here. And uh, to join me for this week's uh, Tennis with an Accent podcast, one of our contributors, Brianna Faust. You can find her at For the Tennis, the number four the tennis uh, talking WTA and ATP. Brianna, welcome back to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me in. I'm glad to be here talking with you again. It's a real treat. So um, I think the first entry point, and we'll get to some other topics down the line, but, uh, you know, so Indian Wells a few weeks away, just around the bend. And uh, one of the players who's going to be impossible to ignore in the Southern California desert, Elena Rabakina. Now, I know that Simona Halep did defeat her. Uh, in the Dubai final, but Rabakina really made an impression in Dubai as well as, you know, just throughout the first two months of the 2020 WTA season, she's made several finals. She's made the final in every tournament other than the Australian Open. And at the Australian Open, she did win two matches, made the round of 32. Uh, so really kind of the, the young breakout star uh, of the WTA season to this point, breakout in the sense that a player we weren't really sure was going to bust out and be great. You know, Sophia Cannon, we were expecting good things from her this year. So I don't use the term breakout for Cannon. I, I, I apply it to Rabakina. But let's get your thoughts. What What are you seeing from her? And what, what you know, what's your general impression of, of where you see this season going for her? Um, well, this was the first time that I got to see Rod Bikina, um in Dubai final with Simona Halep. And it was incredible, the level of tennis that she was playing and making Halep play. Um, I think that was the best that I've seen Halep play in a long time. But just to get back to Rod Bikina, Rybakina, she she's has all the tools to go far. I think um, one thing she can improve on is just getting to the net, and I'm sure that'll come with time as her game develops. But she seems to be really good all around the court. Um, her backhand's great. Um, her forehand can kind of leak a little bit of errors, and kinda is what got her into trouble in that Dubai final. But she's definitely on the upswing. I mean, she's already won 20 matches this year, um, including her wins today in Doha, I believe. So she's definitely an up and coming player. I just hope she doesn't tire herself out by the time the clay season comes around. So let's pick up on that last point that, uh, you know, is, is this something you see as, you know, where she's going to hit a wall, uh, you know, not too far down the line, or do you think that this can be sustained? Uh, you know, we, well, we, we always look for certain signs or signals of whether a player's level of tennis or style of tennis, something in his or her game, uh, either is or isn't sustainable. Do you think that this is, this is the look, of a player who is playing uh, contained and within herself such that this can be replicated long-term in, in 2020. You know, I, this is not a career long question. It's more about a 2020 season question. How, 
how would you address, you know, how sustainable you see uh, Rabakina's uh, tennis at this point? Um, I think she definitely has a game that she could last upon. Um, she's not like hitting flashy shots or anything like that. She's definitely constructing points well. Um, so I think she can continue to rise. I'm not sure what her ranking is right now, but I don't really see her you know, falling off. I, I hope she can continue to keep improving. Which of Rabakina's matches in Dubai this week? And I, and I'm not sure exactly how much tennis you were able to see, but you know, she did beat Kennan, you know, knocked her out of the tournament and uh, she, you know, she saved set points in each set against Petra Martic uh, in the semifinals and then played that magnificent final against Halep, you know, wasn't rewarded with the victory, but that was still a high quality scrap Uh, of of the various results that you saw from Rabakina in this, in this past week in Dubai, uh, which, which one caught your attention the most? And it could have been the match that she lost, you you know, because that was such a high level final. Right. I didn't get to see much of her before the semis and the final, but the final really stood out to me because her game is kind of effortless in a way. She kind of reminds me of another favorite of mine, uh, Sloane Steven, and how her game just looks really easy. She doesn't look rushed. Um, she seems like she has all the time in the world to play the points she wants to play. Uh, and she's also resilient. I mean, Halep is a type of player that can make a lot of her opponents just kind of she's kind of like a boa constrictor, I guess you could say. Um, she just lets them kind of get themselves to a point where they can hit an, a wild error because they have to outlast her great defense. Um, so I'm just really encouraged by what she's doing and she's continuing to play well on these short turnarounds, which is also a great sign, but I just hope she doesn't tire herself out again. Okay. What would you say? What, what's your overall evaluation of Simona Halep? I mean, obviously, uh, another title and being able to stack this result on top of uh, a an Australian Open semifinal. So it's really been a very encouraging start to 2020 for Halep. Um, you know. It seems as though it's, it's she's in an in-between position, Brie, in the sense that she is more consistent than a lot of the WTA. But yet, you know, in many ways, there still isn't a player since Serena Williams became a mom who has been relentlessly consistent throughout a year from January all the way through the WTA finals in Shenzhen, you know, formerly Singapore. Uh, do you, do you think that, and, and when I, when I talk about a, a season that's consistent from, you know, start to finish, I'm thinking like, you know, three major semifinals and maybe, maybe two major finals and a couple of uh, premier mandatory titles. Do you think it's realistic uh, to assign that high a ceiling to Halep based on what you've seen thus far, or, or is skepticism still the better um, approach given that, you know, we still need to see in many corners of the WTA, not just from Halep, we need to see year long consistency before we truly trust it. How, how would you respond to that? Right. I think Halep is at a different point in her career now. Um, I'm not sure that we really need to expect the most consistency from her. We know she can do it. 
week in and week out. But I think she's just at a different place right now. She wants to peak for the big events. Um, so I definitely see Halep contending for titles. And it's strange. I was watching the Dubai final and I was like, I feel like Halep is playing some of the best tennis out of everyone all year. But I couldn't remember how she lost at the Australian Open. I was like, who could knock her out? And then Twitter helped and chimed in and was like, she lost to Muguruza. And I was like, okay, so she's definitely playing some of the best tennis um, around the tour right now. And I just, I don't know. It's just kind of weird. I think we're kind of underrating Halep a little bit, but her game is also one that can be beat by a lot of players we've seen. So it's just really how about she manages her draw. All right. I'm going to ask you about Kim Kleisters in a little bit, just so that's in the back of your mind. But before that, I want to get your opinion on, you know, one of the big picture discussions that we kick around at tennis with an accent in our direct message thread, um, you know, Sakib, myself and Andrew Burton, we talk about this, uh, Mert Artunga as well. We talk about this big picture tension point in terms of the WTA and consistency. Now, and I want to preface this again, because we've had this discussion before, but I think I always need to preface the discussion this way. A lack of consistency is not an indictment or a criticism of the WTA tour or women's tennis. It is simply a reality that we have a lot of parity on the WTA tour. We've had that the last two years. You know, we haven't had really, you know, four or five players really separate themselves in a top tier far removed from everybody else. And it's not, it doesn't have to be five. It can be six or seven, whatever. But like, there isn't like a clear cut ultra top tier and then everybody else. It, the, the, the tour just isn't like that. It hasn't been like that the past two years. Anything you've seen from Dubai and, and the first and the Australian open and the first few months of the season, which gives you uh, any reason to think that, you know, we will by the end of 2020 see a top tier really separate itself from everyone else. And if there is a top tier Brie, which players are going to be part of it? I don't see it. I really don't see any breakthrough unless someone new comes along, you know, like maybe Rybakina goes all Medvedev on the tour or something like that. But I just, I just think it's a era of parody right now, like you said, and I would like to see someone come through and dominate because that's just kind of like what I like to watch in sports. Uh, I just really want a rivalry, you know, to follow. I, I think that's fun for casual people or fans to get into, but um, it's anybody's game. It's anybody's day right now. So we just have to enjoy the tour for what it is, you know? Absolutely. That, you know, consistency or no consistency, WTA tennis is an immensely compelling, high quality product right now. All right. So let's deal with Kim Kleisters. Uh, you know, th that this was at the very beginning of the Dubai tournament, which really, you know, that, the Dubai had a lot of high quality, interesting matches. Halep Jabir, Halep uh, Rabakina, 
and, and several other matches were extremely compelling. We had a lot of three setters. We had a lot of comebacks from a set down. But at the beginning of the Dubai tournament, we had Kim Kleisters against Garabinia Mukarutha. So two multiple major champions meeting. but And, and yet that really wasn't the storyline at all. It was Kim Kleisters coming back after more than a seven-year absence from the tour. And, you know, this is, uh, this is one step higher than a lot of athletes who unretired. This was Kleister's second unretirement. So it was her third act. So Bree, what, what are your overall thoughts on what you saw from Kleister's against Muguruza and how you see her 2020 season shaping up? I think that was the best possible match back for Kim Kleister's. Um, she played, a quality opponent, someone who we know is playing well. And, um, and she comported herself great out there on the court. I think the only thing that was really rusty or showed, you know, um, age or whatever you want to call it was her serve. Um, she was doing a lot of double faults, which we don't normally see from Kim in her comebacks, or at least I don't remember um, from when she returned in 2009. So I think she did great. Um, it's just going to be like, can she do that for seven matches in a row or three, you know, even or four? Um, that's We know she can play a great day of tennis, but can she just do it for a tournament? That's really the only missing piece. Um, I think it's great that she's back out there for the game. Uh, um, I mean, it's a success all around for Kim, I think. What do you think? I I would agree that it was a very encouraging match that, uh, you know, being able to take Muguruza to a tiebreak. And and the point I made when I wrote about this match at tennisaccent.com is that, you know, if this was the 2019 version of Muguruza, the version that had floundered and really failed to establish a firm foothold on the WTA tour, we wouldn't look at this match in nearly the same way. But this is a revitalized Muguruza under Conchita Martinez. So the fact that that Kleister's pushed this version of Muguruza so much, you know, that, that really has to give Kleister's the belief that, Hey, I, I can compete at the top level of the tour. Once I get my fitness base, once I get my, you know, my rhythm back, I, I, I play, you know, multiple matches at a tournament. I get back into that rhythm. Um, you know, so it's, it's certainly immensely encouraging. Let me ask you on the heels of that, Bree. um, when do you, when by what point in the 2020 season do you think Kleisters might be ready to contend for a significant trophy, be it a a premier mandatory, a premier five, uh, or or of course a major tournament? What 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 do you think is the the timeline or trajectory in terms of Kleisters' readiness to to potentially do something special this year? Wow. Um, I think it depends on how much she wants to play, but I guess we could say by the Olympics or U.S. Open time for sure. If if her body holds up, I think she should be in good form by that time of the year. Okay, and you know you you are the foremost Williamsologist on uh, <laughs> tennis with an accent staff. Uh, how how you know is there a matchup? 
with Kleisters and another, you know, really big WTA name that you would like to see. It doesn't have to be one of the Williamses, though obviously a Kleisters Serena match would certainly be a blockbuster event. But uh, Kleisters against any of the top names on the WTA tour, is there a name or two uh, that really stands out for you in terms of a popcorn match you'd like to see Kleisters be part of this year? <laughs> I guess, like you said, uh, Kleisters versus any of her former contemporary players would be awesome to see. Um, I even would be curious to see Sharapova versus Kleisters just to see how that would end up, you know. Um, But yeah, I I think it'd just be interesting to see Kim against anybody because it would be cool to see her play against someone like Naomi just to see how she hangs against a new generation or if she... uh, how she could play against a Halop, you know, someone who's kind of like the extreme or more modern version of Kim, I guess you could say in a different way. Um, and yeah, I would like to see her play a lot of people <laughs> now that you bring it up. Um, I, Serena and Kim, of course, would be something interesting after the 2009 and return. But yeah, I, I don't know who would be your top pick, Matt. It's hard to say. Well, to, to me, to me personally, I think uh, Kleisters against uh, Bianca Andrescu mm. w- would be would be pretty fascinating. Just because, I, I, and I'd like to see, I'd like to see players uh, on opposite ends of the generational spectrum. That's that's one. But two, you know, with Andrescu, there is such uh, variety in her game. And also uh, such a supreme willingness to attack that it would be a, a, a real it would be in, in ways that in ways that wouldn't apply to, for instance, Halep. Uh, Andrescu would would really test Kleister's defense. Uh, I'd really love to see how Kleister's would respond to that matchup. And then, you know, Andrescu could change pace. So, like, I think that. Uh, this is not like a verdict on, you know, who's the best women's player in the world. You know, Ash Barty, of course, has a firm hold on number one for the next few months. Um, you know, how uh, trying to make her way closer to that. And she might catch Barty by Roland Garros with Barty defending, you know, champions points in Paris. Uh, it's not a verdict on who's the best player. But I think that Andrescu in many ways would provide the most complete test and this, of course, is provided that Andrescu uh, is healthy. Uh, so that, that that's the matchup I'd probably prefer to see uh, out of all of them. That's a great choice. I would like to see that as well. Yeah. So um, as we look at Indian Wells on the WTA side, um, any any preliminary thoughts? I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's a few weeks away and we don't have a, a draw sheet to look at, but you know, we've been able to digest several weeks of results. We've seen the players who have, you know, done extremely well. Jennifer Brady, Ons Jabur, uh, Rabakina, of course, Muguruza, uh, you know, Kennan as the Australian open champion. And then we have players who, you know, haven't been able to make a statement thus far. So in terms of like your overview of Indian Wells at this preliminary stage, 
what are some players or storylines that you're keeping an eye on in terms of you know how how much this particular Indian Wells tournament means to them? What what are some of Brianna Faust's um, more significant Indian Wells plot points uh, a, a few weeks before the tournament starts in the Southern California desert? One is, will we see Bianca Andreescu return? Um, I know she was supposed to come back in either Dubai or Doha, and that was pushed back. So I'm not sure if she's still entered for Indian Wells or not. But that would be my main uh, storyline to follow. Um, I would just like to see, you know, see if Serena's going to return to Indian Wells once again. Um seeing Kim against anybody, that would be nice. It would be great to see how Osaka is going to bounce back, you know, after her title defense um, at the Australian Open. We'll see how Barty bounces back. Um, who else? There's there's a lot of good storylines on the WTA tour. It's it's hard to say. Let's let's pick one. Let's pick a player we haven't mentioned yet, and that is uh, Arena Sabalenka. It's Sabalenka is fascinating to me, Bree, in that you could make a case. You could make a case that you know, even though she hasn't lifted a really big trophy so far this year, that she's that she's making incremental progress. You know, it's not. It's not the Kennan Australian Open title. It's not the Muguruza Australian Open runner-up. It's not the Halep Dubai Championship. You know, no resounding statement. But when you compare the, the early weeks of Sabalenka's 2020 season to the early weeks of her 2019 season, it's a lot better. She has been a lot better out of the gate this year compared to last year, but yet, you know, there's, but it's not the overwhelming success that she had in the second half of 2018, kind of a, an, a WTA version of Medvedev really, um, you know, what Medvedev did in the second half of 2019, Sabalenka, you know, it approached to a certain degree uh, in, in the second half of 2018. So, you know, it's not we're not seeing an overwhelming display from Sabalenka, but we do seem to see some signs of progress. So you could make an, an optimist case for her. You could make a pessimist case for her. Where would you stand on that spectrum, Bree? Hmm. I need to look up her previous Indian Wells and Miami results, but I feel like it should help her game the slower hard courts a little bit because um, she can hit through anything. So I would say I would trend up on Sabalenka this this uh, happy swing to see uh, <laughs> to see how she does. But if she lost early, I also wouldn't be surprised. Well, and if, if she does lose early, do you think that's a huge damaging event for her or it's just a one-off, you know, an isolated thing, the kind of thing that we as tennis analysts shouldn't get too worried about? How, how much urgency do you think is riding on this Indian Wells for Arena Sabalenka? Hmm. I wouldn't say that there's like huge pressure on her if she lost early. Um, because she's kind of like an up and down player. She can get hot. She can get cold, it seems like. But I think, you know, it would be disappointing if she doesn't make a quarterfinal, at least, hopefully. Because um, she should be contending for those those spots in those quarterfinals and semifinals. Um, she definitely has the skills to get there. <laughs> 
All right. That's the WTA portion of our show. We can't conclude this broadcast, though, without noting the very significant news on the ATP tour from last week. And that's Roger Federer being out through Roland Garros. So, you know, not a lot. I, I don't really have to spend a lot of time teeing this up. Bree, what what are what is your immediate set of reactions to the Federer injury and the injury absence that will follow for the next few months? Well, it was just shocking to hear that Federer had knee surgery and would be out for so long. Um, he's missing Indian Wells, Miami, uh, uh, Bogota exhibition, and all the clay season that he had played last year. So uh, it was just a shocker. You know, um, Federer's not getting any younger. So anytime that he's out for a while, it's it's kind of a bummer for his fans. But um, I think he'll he'll bounce back okay. It will be interesting to see how this Wimbledon goes because the absence will drop him down in the rankings. Um, Wimbledon will probably move up his seat anyway. But it's it, that that will be an interesting point if Federer's ranking doesn't come back up after this injury. Yeah, that's. I mean, imagine a Federer Djokovic Wimbledon quarterfinal. Oh my goodness. That's- <laughs> That would be quite the event. Um, you know, in terms of uh, my my general reaction to this, for, first, I think we just simply need to stop and realize that Federer, you know, Federer is not retiring, and we could we could very realistically imagine a scenario in which a 38 year old tennis player has to have knee surgery, and he says, "Well." That's it. You know, I'm, I'm hanging it up. I'm not going to put my body through this more. The fact that, you know, his announcement that he's coming back before Wimbledon, that announcement came so immediately, you know, that that is a reminder of, you know, how intent he still is on playing tennis. And, you know, for anyone who might have harbored lingering doubts about his intentions. I think this, you know, it pretty clearly indicates to me that he's going to play in 2021, um, you know, and that that would carry him through his 40th birthday. So, you know, the, 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 you know, this has been a constant point of focus, understandably. So given what the man uh, means to global tennis on so many levels, but I think just the fact that he immediately said that he's coming back, you know, for, for a grass season, it's a reminder that, you know, he's still very much intent on playing tennis and, you know, barring another injury, you know, he's still going to be around for a little bit. That's, that's one important uh, part of this. And then my other main reaction, Bree, is that the last few years at the U S open, uh, you know, Federer's, you know, we, we, we know about Rafael Nadal's Australian Open curse with it, bad injury luck in Melbourne. Federer's de- developed a late career U.S. Open curse with the back problems against Dimitrov and with the humidity against uh, John Millman. Uh, and, you know, he had the back, pro- the, the back spasms that interrupted his preparation and rhythm in the 2017 U.S. Open when he lost in the quarterfinals to Juan Martin Del Potro. So maybe, I mean, this is this obviously doesn't guarantee anything, but maybe if Federer doesn't play the much, much in the first half of, of a tennis season, he will be fresher such that his body will not betray him at the U.S. Open. So that that is something, uh, you know, certainly he hopes uh, will change his trajectory in the second half of a tennis season because, um, you know, obviously in 2017, everything came together for him. He was still playing really well late in that season. You know, he beat Rafa in Shanghai, 
Um, but the, the latter portions of seasons, especially at the ATP finals, uh, has, hasn't broken the, well for him the way it used to. So maybe this injury gives him more of a window into the second half of the seasons. Um, what can I ask on the heels of, of the Federer injury discussion? Just, I guess, which player uh, do you think this might open up the tour for a little bit more uh, as we head to Indian Wells in Miami? Um, you know, Dominic Team obviously has burnished his hard court credentials, uh, as has Alexander Zverev. Maybe, though, this is this gives Stefano Tsitsipas uh, the opening he needs to perhaps seize an opportunity. Wh- which of the uh, of the team uh, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev quartet, which which one do you think is most likely or most poised to pounce on this better absence and, and, and make use of it uh, in the month of March? I think it'll make things easier for uh, TM and Medvedev, maybe, maybe Sitsipas if he goes on a roll in those tournaments. But uh, I think mostly it just really helps Djokovic and Nadal, you know, uh, one less big three member to think about. That that point is unassailable. And on that note, uh, Bree, before we close the Tennis with an Accent podcast, um, any other any uh, tennis soapbox commentary, any uh, thing that you know you've been thinking about and you want to make sure gets on the air uh, that that uh, fans and listeners uh, need to know. Any any uh, uh, point about other things that you've seen from on the tennis landscape the past few weeks that you want to make sure to talk about. Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, Just something that might have uh, slipped through the cracks, uh, but you know, through your observations of the tour or perhaps tennis governance. Uh, just the thing, the things that we talk about day to day, but you know, like when, when we, when we get caught up in the end of a tournament, such as the Dubai final and how great a match that was between Halep and Rabakina, just anything that might've fallen through the cracks that you'd want to lift up for, for, uh, and just to point out for our listeners. Uh, Well, something I wanted to ask you about is what do you think about uh, how tough it is to play Dubai on the WTA side? I know this year for qualifying, they had Gerges was in there. Uh, Players that are ranked in the top 30 were actually having to qualify. (laughs) Yeah, it, it, it really is a commentary on the WTA's depth. Um, you know, when you get the, when you get the smaller tournament size, I mean, you're, you're going to run into, into scenarios such as that. And, and the other thing is that while there is quality depth, this is where the inconsistency I think comes into play, Bree, that, you know, players are so up and down and results fluctuate so much. And, you know, uh, players who posted really strong results at significant tournaments, uh, one year, then they, they, because of their inconsistency, they're not even coming close to defending those points the next year, the next cycle. So that, that creates a lot of, uh, abrupt, severe shifts in rankings. And that, that's what leads to, you know, big names, uh, having to go through qualities. So, uh, I think that the, uh, top, you know, top names having to go through qualities. That's, that is very much a product of the dynamics and the forces that we have seen on the WTA tour of the past two years. 
I think it might be helpful for that tournament to maybe increase the seeds, you know, like how people were trying to argue for the slams for a while or excuse me, to decrease the the seeds. I think it would be better to do the opposite for Dubai just to maybe cut down on some of the buys and just have more competitive first round matches. I think it'd be great for the state of the WTA right now. I I am definitely on team more seeds. I think that having more seeds is better. Uh, I think that, you know, you as a professional, uh, you work to get a seated position, which is supposed to at least hypothetically bring about a better draw. You know, that is a, that, that, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to win a match against a player who is ranked, you know, 20 spots lower, but on balance, yeah, you're, you, you know, the odds are, are more in your favor if you are playing someone who's ranked 15, 20, 25 spots lower. So that that is a reward for performance. So having more seeds creates more uh, ad- advantages and opportunities for top players. Um, you know, they still have to go out and do the work, though. You know, so it's, like, it's, not, it's not as though you're putting guaranteed money in their pocket, but it does reward you tangibly for higher performance over the course of 12 months. So I, I'm, I'm definitely a believer in having more seeds. Of course, the other nuance, Bree, I also believe that tournaments should be seeded in terms of uh, an NCAA tournament style, meaning that it's a fixed seeding system. You know, one would play uh, um, the, the, the top, the number one seed would play the lowest ranked player in the field. And the second ranked the player would play the next to last ranked player in the field. And people tell me, people tell me, Bree, when they, when they raise an objection to this, and it's a reasonable objection, but we're trying to flesh out this point here. They tell me, well, if you're always having, you know, the highest ranked against the lowest ranked and, you know, then the middle ranked, the two middle ranked players always meeting in the first round of a major, well, you're going to get a lot of repetitive scenarios and repetitive matchups. So my answer to that, Bree, is you changed, you, you introduced a surface specific formula. So to Wimbledon uh, for grass, Roland Garros for clay, and then hardcore tournaments would just introduce a hardcore formula. So that way you have the infrastructure based on the world rankings, but you can then adjust the matchups to reflect surface specific quality. And that way you aren't always getting the same matchups in various rounds over the course of a year. So I think there's a way to uh, carry off that balance. So more seeds, but strictly bracketed. In other words, doing away with random draws. Uh, I think that's the way forward for tennis. That's a definitely interesting idea. Um, Yeah, I think we should, you know, tennis should think about playing with the idea of the draws and seedings to to switch up competitiveness. It'd be fun to see something different. You know, it doesn't have to be all the time, but it would be nice to see. Uh, Brianna Faust, this has been a lot of fun, and I do want to tell our listeners to the Tennis with an Accent podcast that both you 
and also Jane Voigt down the T on Twitter are going to be in Charleston. So uh, if there are any tennis with an accent fans in the United States and or Canada or, or any other fans across the world who are ha- going to try to spend a lovely early April week in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, you know, so Brianna Faust and Jane Voigt of tennis with an accent are going to be there. So that's some happy news that I'll be able to share. Um, so want to keep that in mind and uh, Bree, looking forward to your thoughts on not just the WTA, but all things tennis as we approach tennis's own version of March madness in Indian Wells in Miami. This is my favorite part of the year. So I'm super pumped for all the tournaments coming up and yeah, if any of the tennis with an accent listeners are out there and are coming to Charleston, definitely say, Hey, and come holler at me. Cause I'll, I'm definitely down to watch tennis together and even chat about things throughout the day while I can. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us on the tennis with an accent podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. It was great talking tennis with you. All right. Thank you so much.